So uh, we're looking at chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Remember I said 8, 9, and 10 go together. It might seem like when you're looking at chapter 9 here, Paul just kind of goes off on a tangent on another subject all of a sudden because he's been talking about in chapter 8, meat offered to idols, <clears throat> which meant the Corinthians were going to these temples and eating meals there that involved idolatry. And he's, he's going to forbid that in chapter 10 explicitly. But uh, right in chapter 8, he wants to say, remember, that you shouldn't do this because even though you think there's no it's not sinful, people can follow your example and they'll see you there. They could be led back in idolatry, weaker brothers, people who, who don't share your knowledge. Now, their knowledge was faulty. <laughs> they said, you know, there's no gods. There's, these things are unreal. Well, that's true, but there's demons behind this, Paul will say in chapter 10. So Satan's behind all this stuff, and so it's not exactly what you say. But even if you were right, even if your knowledge was right, uh, love has to predominate in our relationship with other believers. Yeah, we have to hold to the truth, but we don't whack them over the head and beat them over the head. We have to approach and love what's best for them, for their spiritual well-being and so forth. And it's not best for these young believers to be, to be led back into the temple again. That's very dangerous. Again, that's idolatry. So Paul, in chapter 9, is going to use his own example of the fact that even though he had certain rights, and they're claiming rights that they shouldn't really claim, but Paul is going to say, even though I've got certain rights, I'm willing to give those rights up for the sake of the ministry, for the gospel, which you should be able to do. You, should, you shouldn't be claiming these things you're claiming I got the right. Nobody's telling me what to do. Uh, you shouldn't be claiming that because you should be willing to give up things for the benefit of the gospel. And so Paul is going to use his own example here. And we noticed in chapter 9, verse 1, he said, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And those two questions are going to dominate the first part of chapter 9. He's going to deal with the first one first, am I not apostle? Am I not an apostle? And the reason why he's going to do that is because he wants to talk about his rights as an apostle, that he's willing to give up. Even though he has these rights, he's willing them to give them up for the sake of the gospel. So that's the first thing he goes into, and we started on that last time, Paul's apostleship. In verses 9, 1 through 3, he argues that he is an apostle. He's seen the Lord and so forth. And now in chapter 9, verse 4, chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 4, where we left off last time, we're looking at Paul explaining his rights as an apostle. And he starts talking about these rights, and he goes into a long discussion of them. He says, uh, first of all, verse 9, verse 4, I'm sorry, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I 
and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living. So as I say, he begins this defense with these rhetorical questions that we see uh, to demonstrate his rights as an apostle. So these questions in verses 4 and 5 are really variations of what he's going to say in verse 6, and that is the right not to work. That's what he's really getting to. Is it, you know, we, as an apostle, I have the right not to have to support myself. Now we know, we'll see, Paul did support himself quite often, but he, as a minister of the gospel, he had the right not to. He had the right to be supported by those he was ministering to. So question one is in verse four, the we, don't we have the right? This could be referring just to Paul. Sometimes Paul uses the, the word we. I talked about, talked about this before as a literary plural. Uh, it's, it's just common in Greek literature for, for people to refer to themselves as we. Uh, seems strange. The only people we hear doing that now is the Queen of England or the King of England. They always talk about we. They usually call it a plural of majesty. So the idea is that the Queen or the King is so great, we say, you know, she, the Queen of Queen would always say we. She never said I in her life I mean, as a Queen. She always said we. And the King now, King Charles, will always say we. We, we do this. We believe this. And so... Uh, this could be what he's doing. He could be referring, as I say, to others, uh, his traveling companions, you know, who would go with him and that kind of thing. Uh, the key word in each of these questions is the word right. Don't we have the right? Don't we have the right? You know, or is it only Barnabas who lacked the right and so forth? Uh, he's speaking of the right to room and board, financial support. Question two is from verse, in verse five. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along? as do the other apostles, the Lord's brothers, and Cephas. This, I say this is probably related to the question of support for not only oneself, but also one's wife. So this suggests that at least at the time of this verse, Paul and Barnabas were single men. There's tremendous debate about whether Paul was ever married. I can make some arguments that Paul may have been married and was married, but he doesn't seem to have been married at this time. And, uh, but he's saying we could have. We had the right to do this. The third question, I say, is in verse 6. It makes clear that the two previous questions were all about, what they're all about. As Paul says, or is it, our, is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? The issue is Paul's right not to work, meaning work with his own hands at a trade. Uh, remember he says back in chapter 4, we worked hard with our own hands when he was there. And remember, we read that section from chapter 18 of the book of Acts where when Paul first came to Corinth to evangelize, he met Aquila and Priscilla there, and he worked with them. They were leather workers like he was, tent makers or leather workers, and he worked with them. But then it says uh, when he got an offering from Macedonia, he didn't have to work uh, to support himself anymore. So... Um, Maybe, you know, he mentions himself, he mentions himself and Barnabas here. Uh, apparently, Barnabas was known to have uh, worked at a trade when he evangelized. So Paul is saying that, you know, he, he has the right to have his daily needs supplied. He has the right to have a wife who could accompany him. He has the right not to work at a trade in order to meet his needs. 
Um, now he's going to now give us some illustrations to demonstrate this right. Okay, I'm going to explain why I have this right. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Uh, who plants a vineyard and does not eat the grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? So these illustrations, this illustration is illustrating the point of verses 4 through 6. He's using these illustrations from everyday work world. And he uses, starts off with these rhetorical questions. Uh, he uses the farmer, the soldier, the farmer, and the shepherd. And everyone expects a no answer. Who serves as a soldier at all expense? No. No. When you, when you, even in the United States, you go in the military, you don't have to pay your way. They, <laughs> they pay you for serving in the military. Um, no soldier serves his own expense. Uh, every, every wine dresser eats his own grapes, you know, and every uh, shepherd drinks the milk from his flock. So one, and what the point is, in everyday life, one expects to be sustained by their own labors. Uh, so it's with the apostle. He should be sustained by, from his protos, his flock, the church the church in Corinth that owes its existence to him. Verse 8, do I say this merely as on a human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? So Paul now moves beyond this argument from human analogies to Scripture itself. Now, again, the arguments take, again, a form of a couple of rhetorical questions. It says, do I say this merely on human authority? Expects a negative answer, no. Paul's talking about those previous illustrations. So it says, are the analogies I have given based on a mere human perspective? Of course not. The first question sets the stage for the second. Doesn't the law say the same thing? The law, that's the Old Testament law of Moses. For it's written, verse 9, in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain. Is, is it about the, that, the, the ox that God is concerned? Is it, is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely, he says, this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of har sharing in the harvest. So I say the word for that begins verse 9 explains that Paul now is going to explain his appeal to the law in verse 8. There is clear proof for Paul's previous argument in support of his apostolic rights written in the law of Moses. The text Paul cites is Deuteronomy 25.4, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. This citation demonstrates by analogy from the words of Scripture that was argued from everyday life in the analogies in verse 7, that the laborer is permitted to enjoy the benefits of the harvest, even if the labor is a lowly ox. So this reflects the, you know, the common practice, agricultural practice, of your driving, I, I mean, I don't, I've never done this, but I'm just telling you what I've read about. <laughs> You're driving an ox along a threshing floor, you know, and it's drawing a, it's drawing a sledge on, on a floor, and the purpose of this is to release the kernels from the stalk, you know, so you're trying to, to clear that. But the ox is doing the work. And out of mercy for the ox, the Old Testament did not allow you to muzzle the ox. You couldn't just if the ox wanted to eat some of this stuff it was producing, it could eat it, you know. You couldn't, the law, God said, can't, you can't muzzle that ox and so forth. And so Paul says, this is now written for us. Now, this creates a little bit of a problem because all of a sudden Paul says, is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? <laughs> you know. Um, 
you know, it seems like in the Old Testament, yeah, God is talking about the ox. He's, he, God wrote that law. He gave that law for the oxen. But the point I think Paul is making here, most understand this way, that uh, as I say, Paul's purpose in this context is not to explain the meaning of the Old Testament text. Paul's question, is it about the oxen that God is concerned, is presently presented merely to set up the question in verse 10. Surely he says for thus, says this for us, doesn't he? So what he's, what he's doing is, as I say, Paul is viewing the law as teaching a general principle from one which one can draw an analogy. analogy. So those who study the Old Testament you know, will tell us that what you find in the Old Testament is a lot of laws, but they don't cover every circumstance. They give general principles and so forth. And so Paul sees here a law that says, you know, God says you can't muzzle a lowly oxen. And if that's true for oxen, surely it's true for us. <laughs> you know, truly, truly that, that would apply to human beings, to, to us also. So it's a, it's a paradigm, it's an example for a lot of other human circumstances. You know, he's not denying that the law is concerned for oxen, but recognizing that the law has a wider application. It's a way of teaching... This law was a way of teaching Israel of God's mercy for all of us. Uh, if God cares about the oxen that much, what, what do you th doesn't he? It shows you how much he would care about us, about humans. Uh, he would care even more about that. And so Paul is trying to apply that to the present situation. If God cared enough about the oxen to allow them to eat the fruit of their work, certainly. I should be able to eat the fruit of my work. I should be supported uh, by those who I'm working. Uh, so I say in verse 10, Paul says that God was teaching more than concern for the ox in Deuteronomy 25, 4, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing the harvest. So human laborers, they benefit from this law of not muzzling the ox. Uh, because, as I said, they, 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 in a sense, eat the fruit of their labors. They are supported by the fruit of their labors. And all this works together for Paul for his right to some material support. Now, as we'll see, <laughs> just to jump ahead here, Paul's going to say, I'm, I'm gonna, I gave up this right, and he'll explain why he did. But right now he's just going to say, I have this right. And that's the whole point for the Corinthians. I had a right that I was willing to give up. You had a right that you say you had, and I'm not going to contest that right now because they're saying, you know, these, these, these idols are not real. They're not God. There's only one true God. So we have the right to go to the temple and it doesn't affect us. Okay, let's, let's assume that's true. Even if that's true, you're still, in, you're still, still got a problem here because of what you're doing to your weaker brother here. Uh, verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And if others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? So picks, Paul picks up these themes from the previous analogy and specifically applies them to the present argument. He has sown spiritual seed among them, thus it should not be too much there for him to reap a material harvest from them. If others have so benefited from them, should not now, should not, uh, should not he have this right as well? 
Paul's work in Corinth has been that of sowing the gospel, which meant for them the reaping of things that have to do with the Spirit. Um, um, so is it too much that they should, that should now work in reverse, that they, should, that, that they should benefit him materially? No, it's not. The final question in verse 12a, if others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? It's pretty plain and direct. Others have been receiving some support from the Corinthians. Certainly their spiritual father should have this right to support. We don't know exactly who these others were. Um, remember he talks in 415, even if you've had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you've not had not many fathers, so he may be referring to other teachers. Uh, he talked about Apollos, he talked about a Peter. So uh, others, they have supported others, they have given money to others. Certainly they can do it for the Apostle Paul. Verse 12b, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up, every, put up with every, anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So now all of a sudden Paul's going to explain why he didn't use this right. Now he's going to explain that more fully in verses 15 through 18, but before he gets there, I don't know, he, he thinks of two more illustrations or he goes to two more illustrations of the fact that he has these rights. Notice, uh, I say, Paul's basic reason for not demanding material support he was rightfully entitled to was his concern for the effectiveness of his gospel ministry. Um, Paul, um, Paul explains that rather than exercise his right to material support, he was willing to put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul has in mind anything that would hinder evangelism in any way. When he says the gospel of Christ, every time this phrase the gospel of Christ is used, it's always used about preaching the gospel of Christ. So he's talking about evangelism. I put up with anything rather than hinder the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. So when it comes to a choice between his own rights and others hearing the gospel, then there's no choice at all for him. Anything that gets in the way of others hearing the gospel, he's going to set aside. Um, now, what Paul has in mind here as to this hindrance, what would hinder, uh, he's going to explain fully when we get to verses 15 through 18. But he's talking about preaching the gospel freely here. Uh, when we think about preaching the gospel, um, we, we're talking about not accepting any pay. You know, he, he's going to talk about that quite a bit. Um, so Paul didn't, remember, he said back, he says, he'll, says, he'll say in 2 Corinthians 2.17, unlike so many others, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those that... So Paul says, what I'm doing is not for profit. I'm not going to... Uh, I, I'm, he says, I want to preach the gospel without charging anything or getting any remuneration because I want to, I want, I want to, I want to illustrate the free nature of the gospel, that the gospel is free. It doesn't cost anything. We talked about that last week. Um, and that's in contrast to some people, he says, 
who peddle the word of God for profit. Um, you know, and we think of, <laughs> you know, we think of TV evangelists sometimes. It seems like they're peddling the word of God for profit. You know, it's what it, it seems like, you know, it just, that's the big thing. Um, verse 13, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? So Paul is just started getting into this thing about why he gives up his rights because he wants to preach the gospel without any charge to show the free nature of the gospel. He comes back now. <laughs> he interrupts his explanation by two additional illustrations that give more strongly support his argument that he had a right to be supported by the Corinthians. There, these are illustrations that more closely parallel to the situation since they involve religious service. I mean, he talked about the oxen, you know, but here's religious service. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple, yeah, get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar sharing what's offered to the altar. Uh, so clearly they knew this. They knew it because both in Jewish situations from the Old Testament and in pagan situations, this is what happened. People brought sacrifices in the Old Testament and the priests got part of that. In the, in the, in the pagan temples, that was the same thing. You brought a sacrifice and the priest took their share of that kind of thing. So uh, that's, that's a great example for him. Those who serve share in what is offered on the altar. Verse, nine, verse 14, In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. It reminds me of the King James translation here, something like, those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And I remember when I was first saved and I read that, I thought it was talking about those who preach the gospel should really demonstrate the gospel in their lives. They should live of the gospel. They should, they should, you know, demonstrate they live of the gospel. I didn't... <laughs> It, it, the translation confused me here. But what he's talking about, as we can see from the translation here, is that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, Larry, would you take up the offering while I'm speaking here? <laughs> Larry, Larry says he's already. Larry says he's already given. He's he's already given. He can't do anything. He's broke. <laughs> Pastor Ken took all his money, so he doesn't have anything left. But that's what he says. Uh, Paul caps off his argument with a word from the highest possible authority, Christ himself. The Lord has commanded those who preach should receive their living. So Paul's argument, I think, you know, probably comes from what we read in the Gospels when Christ sent out, I think, you know, we think, when Christ sent out his disciples on these missions like in Mark, uh, Matthew 10, and Luke 10, he told them, stay there when you go to these places, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house. So Jesus expected when he sent out those, Luke, Luke 10, he sends out the disciples out on a preaching mission. He expects them to be supported by the people he is preaching to. That's probably what Paul is referring to in this case. But, but now we come to Paul's apostolic restraint. 
And this section may seem a little strange. Paul has previously vigorously defended his rights to the Corinthian support, but now he argues for his right to give it up. But the context indicates, you know, that's really been Paul's point all along. Paul's point all along has been to explain in terms of his unique situation, his unique relationship to the gospel, why he has deliberately not accepted their support. Now, he may have been getting some criticism of that. Now, that may seem strange, but remember I said in the ancient world, people went around from place to place giving speeches, lectures, teaching, and uh, they were supported by the people that, that they lectured to or taught or so forth. It was common practice, that kind of thing. And as we saw when Paul came to Corinth, he, got a, he, he worked with Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, he didn't take any money. And he's going to explain now that though he took money from churches he had already established, <laughs> remember I said when he came to Corinth, he got some people, uh, Titus and Timothy came from, uh, from Macedonia and brought him some money so he didn't have to work. He didn't take any money from the people he was evangelizing at the time because he wanted to show the freeness of the gospel. Verse 15, But I have not used any of these rights, and now I am now not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. So Paul's argument returns to what he began with in verse 12. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So he argued in 3, 4, 3 through 14 that he had the right to material support. Now he repeats, even though I have this right, I haven't used this right. And to make this more clearly understood, he says, furthermore, I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. He's not writing, you know, his, this defense so that they'll begin now to support him, you know, to give him money um, that they had been doing for others. And I say Paul is so concerned that he has been, well, what he's been writing in 3 through 14 about his right to be supported in the gospel ministry might be misconstrued as a backhanded way of trying to actually secure this right that he rather emotionally explains, for I would rather die <coughs> than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. The word boast here, it's kind of a funny word in Greek. It's hard to translate because we always think of boasting as always negative. It always has a negative context. Uh, prideful boasting. Uh, it's not always that way in Greek. It has more the idea of glorying something that you can take pride in properly. And that's what Paul is saying. You know, uh, it's, you know I, 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 this is a good thing for me to, to glory in the fact that I'm preaching the gospel free. This is a positive thing for me. Um, I say Paul believed that for him to have assumed his apostolic right to support would have to put a hindrance in the way of proclaiming the gospel. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Thus Paul says that no one will allow him to deprive him of this boast. Paul is actually referring to his not accepting support from those whom he evangelizes. Uh, so Paul was not carrying out his assignment as though it was a job that he had to be paid for, he's saying. Verse 16, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast 
since I am compelled to preach. So his boast is not that I preach, I can't glory in the fact that I preach the gospel. I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. The four that begins this verse indicates Paul's purpose is to explain the final part of verse 15 about not allowing anyone to deprive him of his boast. Paul's boast, contrary to what we might think, is not that he is willingly preaches the gospel. It's not that. But why can't Paul boast in his willingness to preach the gospel? First he says, I am compelled to preach. Paul's speaking about his divine destiny. So Paul is saying here, preaching the gospel is not something I chose to do. It's not something I volunteered for. It's something he had to do. That is in the sense that the God, the creator of the universe, had ordained this destiny for him from his birth. And he revealed that on the Damascus Road, you remember? Uh, The Lord said to him, you remember, he says, uh, Now get up from your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness. I will rescue from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness, so forth. So here's, here's the God of the universe saying to the creature he created, I have this thing you must do. Um, so that's his calling. It's his compulsion. He had to do it. Um, I say here, Paul is under such divine compulsion that he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So if Paul didn't do this, he would stand under a judgment, divine judgment, if he were failed to fulfill this. God said do it, so we have to do it. Um, So Paul's point is, I can't boast about this because I didn't do it willingly, as we'll see here. It's not that Paul in his own mind, hated the gospel, didn't, you know. But he says, God said you must do it. I didn't volunteer for it. God said you have to do this. Uh, and this is for verse 17 is commonly misunderstood. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What we might expect next in Paul's argument is an explanation of what Paul's boast does not consist of, since it does not consist of simply being willing to preach the gospel. Instead, Paul further elaborates on what he has just said in verse 16 about the compulsory nature of the task of preaching the gospel. In thinking about his own work of preaching the gospel, Paul conceives of two possible alternatives that a person may carry out that task. The free individual and the slave. So he says one could do this job voluntarily, that is, like a free person. Or one could do it not voluntarily, like a slave or like a steward. So if one is free and does it voluntarily, he's entitled to a reward. Um, the, the word reward is, it means pay, he's entitled to pay. Um, And the first alternative, if I preach the gospel voluntarily, I have a reward, is just there to set up the opposite. But if not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. 
Uh, Paul, as he sees it, as he sees his calling, does not preach the gospel voluntarily. It's not that Paul's being forced against his will to preach the gospel, but that because he has been especially called to do this work by God himself, he cannot be seen as a volunteer. That fact rules out any possibility of reward or pay in Paul's case. Uh, so Paul's point here is the one with which he began in verse 16. He can't boast about his preaching the gospel um, because he was given this divine commission by the God of the universe. He didn't just volunteer. He just didn't, you know, see a task out there and volunteer to do it. If, if, if one does it voluntarily, he's entitled to pay. Uh, so Paul's apostleship is similar to that of a steward. A steward in the ancient Roman world was almost always a slave. And so um, this steward didn't get any pay. He's a slave. But he might manage the house. You know, the one thing about, one thing about different about Roman slavery is Roman slavery was not racial in any sense. They enslaved anybody. <laughs> they enslaved thousands and thousands of people, millions of people, as they conquered territory. But they, they got a lot of smart people. They got a lot of brilliant people. And they brought them to Rome, and they put them in charge of all kinds of things. You know, it's free labor, man. You got these slaves who are brilliant guys who can speak languages, who can interpret, you know, things. And they would, they, they, and so uh, these stewards, as he's talking about as a steward, were people who were quite capable, but they didn't have to pay them anything. They didn't, they didn't, they, they were slaves. They, 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 were, they were commanded by their master to do this sort of thing. And Paul is saying, that's what I am. I've been entrusted as a steward to manage like a household. I'm not entitled to any pay. And that's the point Paul is going to make in this next verse. Verse 18. What then is my reward? Just this. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. What then is my reward, Paul asked, since Paul did not volunteer to perform the task of preaching the gospel to Gentiles, not entitled to be paid, but he does have a reward. Paul considers the privilege of preaching the gospel free of charge, that is the privilege of not exercising his right, a reward in that of itself and the, uh, of a reward in and of itself and the source of the, or basis of his pride. So it's this inner reward that comes from knowing that he is offering the gospel free of charge, um, not accepting you know, um, the use of his right to gain support from his preaching. Uh, that's, his, that's what he glories in. That's his reward. Um, so by preaching the gospel freely, that is not accepting any pay for it, He's able to illustrate the free nature of the gospel, as we said. Uh, it's the free nature of the grace of God. Um, and so Paul shows by his own example here, um, uh, he shows in this application, I guess we could say, um, the principle he talked about in the earlier discussion on whether to meet, whether to eat meat uh, sacrificed in an idol temple. 
Um, so, um, while there was nothing wrong with eating the meat itself, he gave up that right so it wouldn't be a stumbling block to others. That's what he's trying to get them to see. Uh, you, you, you should be willing to give up this right to eat this meat because it's a stumbling block to others. And so by offering the gospel free of charge, as he does, not accepting pay from those he's preaching the gospel to, um, he's kind of a living example of the free nature of the gospel. Um, he gives up his rights so he doesn't cause harm, a stumbling block, cause harm to other people, to other believers. And this is something the Corinthians should imitate him on. They should be willing to give this up. So they know that he gave up the right to pay. He explains why he gave up the right to pay. He wanted to illustrate the freeness of the gospel, but is willing to give up something should illustrate for them their willingness for the sake of the gospel to give up this so-called right uh, to eat at these pagan temples. Now, this is remember, this is a hard thing for them. They've been going there their entire life, you know. And, you know, just to stop doing that kind of thing is difficult. It's, it's you know, it would be very difficult, you know, because everybody around you is going to these temples, these celebrations, and you say, and you've got to explain you can't go. That would be very hard for them. That'd be, that'd be a, that would be, a, you know, that would be hard to do. And so it wasn't easy what Paul is asking them to do here. Dandelion greens are a steak. Yeah. There's no comparison. There's no comparison. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of, you know, things that we might encounter where, you know, we, we have had some things like that where we, you know, people don't understand why we might not do certain things, you know, why we might not go to certain places or attend certain events, you know, um, and, uh, you know, Pastor Ken mentioned his message on Sunday. He's going to watch the Super Bowl, but he's not watching the halftime show, you know. Well, a lot of people can't understand why anybody would say that. Because I know from social media that a lot of people thought that halftime show was the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know. So why wouldn't you want to watch it? In fact, I know a lot of Christians who said it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. So it's not easy to, to reject what the culture thinks is so wonderful sometimes, you know, uh, that kind of thing. It's, it's, and this may become increasingly a problem for us, you know, as time goes on. We've lived in a kind of a Christian culture in the United States, so, you know, what we believed has been sort of what the culture believed, but it's not always true, you know, and it's becoming less true now and maybe more of a problem because unbelievers don't understand our positions on things at all. Things like the, the gay marriage thing, they don't really, they can't fathom 
are any that a Christian could be against that, you know. It's just love. Yeah, yeah. They can't they can't quite fathom it and it's <coughs> it's hard to understand why a Christian wouldn't be accepting of that. So that's you know, that's that's sort of what Paul is dealing with here is they can't quite fathom why Paul would be against this sort of thing since these idols are simply just stone or wood in the temple. They're not really gods at all. Well, now Paul talks about... Um, well, let's see, somewhere he talks about Paul's apostolic freedom here. Uh, Paul asked two questions in 9.1, Am I not free and am I not an apostle? The second question was dealt with in 1-14, through 14, particularly his right to be an apostle, to be supported by those he ministered to. Paul started answering the first question, am I not free in verse 15? But I have not used any of these rights. However, he got sidetracked because of his concern that some might think his long argument about his right to support might sound like a disguised solicitation for it. And now I'm writing this in the hope that you will, I'm not writing this in the hope you will do such things for me. Now in verse 19, Paul returns to the theme of freedom and expounds upon it. Paul is free from external obligations that might impinge on how he conducts his ministry, yet he voluntarily catered to the personal culture and religious patterns of the people he was evangelizing in order to win them to Christ. Paul says, verse 19, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Paul now says that although he is free, he is thus free and belongs to no one, he has used his freedom to become a slave to everyone. And we said because he is Christ's slave, his steward, he has to work without pay because he's carrying out the duties of a steward. But working without pay also means he is free from any human restraints on his ministry. Uh, that no one, can, no one can put constraints upon him. So he can be, become a slave if he wants to, to other people. He can... He can uh, uh, enslave himself to their desires. However, freedom is not Paul's goal, rather that this, it's the salvation of others. I made myself a slave to win as many as possible. So since he's independent of other people, there's no strings attached, he can put himself at the disposal of others to win them to the gospel. As he says, he calls it, make myself a slave. Um, you know, maybe he's thinking about the servanthood of Jesus who became a servant. Um, and that, that, that's somewhat of the, the ultimate expression of truly Christian behavior is to um, become a slave in order to serve others. In this context, Paul becoming a slave of all is to be understood in light of the example that follow, examples that follow which we will see is referring to his willingness to accommodate himself to whatever social settings he found himself in so as to win as many as possible. So I use the word accommodate here. Paul accommodates himself to the social settings. 
So be careful here. Now I'm saying Paul accommodated his style of living. He didn't accommodate his theological principles. He didn't accommodate himself to other people's ethical principles. You know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't uh, change on those. He didn't um, knock those down or, you know, in any way not uphold the highest theological and ethical principles. But he was willing to accommodate his style of living uh, to whoever he was with in order to uh, have, you know, to win that person to Christ. In other words, he was flexible in his general lifestyle. As long as we're not talking about sin, you know. Um, you know, sometimes the example is given of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was this very famous missionary to China in the, uh, mainly in the 19th century. But when he went to China, uh, he did something that other missionaries didn't really like. He dressed like a Chinese person. He wore his hair kind of long like they do, the Chinese men did, you know. And he dressed as a Chinese person. And he did it so he could, you know, be more acceptable to Chinese and win them. But other missionaries thought that's a real compromise. And he didn't think so. I don't think it was. It was accommodating himself to the lifestyle. You know, there was nothing sinful about the lifestyle that he was accommodating himself to. Um, Verse 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. So Paul now proceeds to explain what he meant in verse 19 by the words, make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. What does that mean? He does so by specifying some of the kinds of social settings in which he practiced evangelism. So Paul's reflecting here on the different Jewish and Gentile settings. The central question here is the Jewish law, the Old Testament law. Uh, you know, so when Paul was with the Jews, if we were to use a modern term, he was kosher. You know, the Jews, Orthodox Jews, have kosher laws, that is, food has to be prepared a certain weight, meat has to be prepared a certain way, and so forth. They can only eat certain, kosher just means proper, that's fitting. They, they certain foods, you know. It's, in fact, you can, I don't know, I don't pay attention to the grocery store, but you used to see labels that said kosher. Does it still say kosher on food in the grocery store anymore? Some cans or something? You know, I've seen yeah. it on some things, but I can't remember uh, if it's hot dogs or what. What does it say? That? Yeah. Okay. So there's still, you know, kosher kind of food that Jews have to eat kosher kind of food. And Paul is, I'm just using a contemporary word here. So Paul, when he was among the Jews, he observed those food laws. But when he was, so when he was, you know, obviously, you know, when he was with the Jews, he wouldn't eat a ham sandwich. But when he was in the Gentiles, he would eat uh, things that, that, you know, neither mattered it doesn't, these things didn't matter in this dispensation. Uh, as I say here, Paul's concern was to win the Jews as well as all others. So the Jews, I became like a Jew. So the first item gives us a clue for understanding the others. Uh, we may wonder, how can a Jew become like a Jew? 
the obvious answer is in Jewish religious peculiarities that Paul as a Christian would have long ago given up on as being essential to a right relationship to God. You know, this would include like circumcision. Remember, to an Old Testament Jew, circumcision is essential to a right relationship with God. But Paul had given up on that. Circumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commandments with us. Neither circumcision means anything. So Paul had given up on circumcision. Uh, he had given up on food laws. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat or better if we do eat. You know, so, so those food laws are not you know, important anymore. Uh, special observances. Don't let anyone judge you with regard to religious festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. So Paul had given up those peculiarities of Jewish lifestyle, food laws, special observances. Um, and not only was Paul free from these kinds of things, he opposed anyone who would oppose these kinds of things on Gentiles. You remember uh, when... Uh, he says in Galatians 2, when Jews wanted Titus the Gentile to be circumcised, I oppose that. I said, no, we're not. Gentiles don't have to observe these things. But he didn't have any problem, apparently, with Jews continuing these kinds of, if they don't want to eat ham sandwiches, that's fine. As long as you don't think that eating ham sandwiches makes you right with God. See, that's the problem. As long as you are not trying to be saved by these kinds of things. Um, as long as these things don't give you a right standing with God, as long as they're just Jewish cultural practices. Um, so Paul is, is delivering the Jews from, he, he's saying, these, these things don't give you a right standing. They don't give you salvation. Paul was willing to yield to Jewish customs for the sake of the Jews. Remember, we said he wouldn't allow Titus to be circumcised, but he did circumcise Timothy in Acts 16. And apparently the reason there was Timothy's mother was a Jew, so to Jews, he's a Jew. Remember, I've told you that before that in Judaism, your heritage is determined by your mother, not your father. So if you want to, be a, if you want to, go, to, if you want to go to Israel and be a citizen, your, Jew, your, your, your mother better be Jewish. If your father's Jewish and your mother is an American, you're in trouble. <laughs> it's your mother marks the maternal the, the line. And so uh, Timothy is, is considered Jewish. Paul apparently wants him to be circumcised so he can go with him in these Jewish places. He can, he can be considered a Jew when he evangelizes the Jew. He doesn't give any offense and all that kind of stuff. But he's not allowing Titus to do it. He's a Gentile clear. And simple, we're not, we're not going to allow that. So Paul was willing to bend on these social things, you know, in order to win people. Second item, to those under law may be a reference to God-fearers and proselytes. To those under the law became like one under the law. So maybe God-fearers, proselytes. With the parenthetical addition, though I myself am not under the law. Paul makes it clear that as a New Testament believer... Uh, as a New Testament believer, he was not under the Mosaic law. 
He did, however, at certain times voluntarily comply with some Mosaic regulations in order to more effectively evangelize those who still believed the law was binding upon them. So Paul sometimes freely placed himself under the law for the sake of others, but he wasn't obligated to do, do so. So you could be confused by what Paul is doing. Uh, the difference between his own behavior and maybe some others was Paul was doing it simply to win others. Some might be doing it in order to... Um, in order to um, uh, be right with God or to be right with other people. I mean, he opposes Peter, you know, there in Galatians because it's hypocrisy. Peter's not doing what he's doing for the right reason with the Jews. Um, so Paul abstains because he loves those under the law. He abstains from eating those ham sandwiches when he's with the Jews because he wants to win them to Christ. So, you know, this is why, you know, I'm a dispensationalist because Paul says very clearly, uh, I am not under the law. So we're not under the, the Old Testament law and so forth. We don't have to obey that law. To those, verse 21, not having a law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. The third item in this series, not having a law, corresponding to the second one, those under the law, as its opposite. Paul is here referring to his conduct among Gentiles, including the majority of the Corinthian believers. For those not having the law, Gentiles, I became like one not having a law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those. As in the previous verse, he adds this parenthetical modifier. I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law. So among the Gentiles, he behaves as one who's not under Jewish law, but he's not free from God's law altogether. I say here in Romans 2, 14 and 15, Paul argues that when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. Because we are in the image of God, we have the moral law of God written in our hearts. This can be demonstrated by the fact that we have a conscience which debates right and wrong. This moral law causes us sometimes to do by nature the things required by the law, like refraining from murder and theft. Paul sees Gentiles being responsible for those moral standards that God has placed upon them. And this, since Gentiles are under the law, not the law of Moses exactly, but law nevertheless. Thus all people possess moral law since it is written on their hearts. The moral law of God is eternal. It was reflected in the Mosaic law, though the Mosaic law is much broader, including civil and ceremonial laws binding only on the nation of Israel. The Mosaic law is an indivisible unit that reached its culmination in Christ and has been abrogated. Christ is the end of the law, Paul says in Romans 10 and 4. The Mosaic law is a code or contractual, ob contractual obligation is not directly applicable to New Testament believers. It is no longer a direct and immediate source of or judge of the conduct of God's people, Doug Moose says in his commentary. 
Dorsey, another guy, writes, says, according to the Old Testament writers, this treaty was violated, in fact, repudiated by the nation. <clears throat> and according to the New Testament writers, God has consequently abrogated the treaty and established a new treaty, that is, a new covenant. When a new treaty or contract replaces the older one, as in the modern labor contracts, the terms of the older contract are normally non-binding upon parties. Granted, parties may be interested in the terms of a formal contract for various reasons, but as far as the legal applicability is concerned, it is the terms of the new contract, not the old, that are binding. On the other hand, moral truth or precepts that flow from the character of God do not change and cannot change. This eternal moral law has always been and always will be binding on human creatures. For example, murder was wrong before the law, was during, was during the period of the law, is wrong in the New Testament age, will be wrong in the kingdom. For Israel, the moral law became a part of a larger legal system, the Mosaic law, which included civil and ceremonial demands, along with precise penalties that were culturally specific to a particular people living in a particular location at a particular time. And you can see my diagram there. What's binding upon Paul and us is what he calls Christ's law. Christ's law obviously includes God's eternal moral law as well as the teaching and example of Jesus and the apostles found in the New Testament. So I'm just trying to illustrate there that there is God's eternal moral law written on our hearts. It can't change. Murder is always wrong. Murder was wrong in Eden. It was wrong among the patriarchs. It became part of the Mosaic law, which included not only moral law, but civil and ceremonial because we have a nation, uh, a kingdom, but that Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, ended. And now we're under Christ's law, which includes that eternal moral law, but also, you know, commands in the New Testament. All right, that's a lot. <laughs> but I'll stop there for now, Lord willing, and we will try to pick that up next week. Thank you so much.